Hey, thanks for joining us today at Divine Church. We're one church, two locations, reaching around the world with the help of our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ, and you can partner with us by sharing this video or clicking the Give link below. But for now, prepare your heart for some incredible worship and inspiring message. I count on one thing, the same God that never fails will not fail me. Oh, you fix our eyes on you. 
Well, how are you, church? Good. It's good to see you. It's great to be with you this morning. For those of you I haven't had the privilege of meeting yet, my name's Andrew Irwin, and I do get to be one of the pastors here at the Vine Church, and I am fired up that I get to be with you this morning as we jump back into our Engage message series. And if you're just joining us for this series, I want to quickly catch you up. What we've discovered so far together is that each and every one of us has been created for community. And we've been called to engage in community, which is why when our church leadership got together and asked the question, how are we going to go about the work of making disciples, making disciples in 2020 and beyond, we kind of came to a very clear vision. The way we're going to continue making disciples, making disciples is by creating Christ-centered communities, because it's in Christ-centered communities where we discover that we can be fully known and fully loved. And the reason we can be fully known is because when you get surrounded by people who genuinely care about you, people you're confident aren't there to break you down, but they're there to build you up, what happens is you allow yourself to let your guard down and to be vulnerable and transparent and show people who you really are. And it's really It's really powerful when that happens because it's only when you allow people to really see who you are that you allow people to really love you for who you are. And let me be clear on this. Not love who you're becoming, but love who you are right now. And when that happens, you find this sense of encouragement and engagement from people around you that just takes your soul to a deeper place in your relationship with the Lord. And not only can a community encourage you, it can also equip you to grow as a follower of Jesus and to invite other people to grow as followers of Jesus. And so my hope is that you're getting a glimpse of how powerful these types of communities can really be, which is why like, our heart is for every person at the vine to really find this type of community, which, why, which is why I wanna like strongly urge you to make sure you get signed up for a connect group. Like if you haven't signed up yet, go to our website, connecttothevine.org, get signed up for a connect group. You will find this sense of community. And if you're new to the vine and you're going, man, I don't know if I know enough people here to get jumped, like to jump into somebody's living room who I've never met before. That's cool. That's why we're offering Engage. Engage is just a group of people who are new to the vine, getting together to learn about the vine's past, present, and future, and more importantly, to learn about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus together. Because when you're in that environment, you're going to see transformation begin to take place all around you. And that's why, like, as Pastor Gus just said, we're fired up as a staff about Engage. Like, we are, because we believe that amazing kingdom things are going to unfold in our midst. And I think part of the reason that like as a staff, we're fired up about Engage is because we're really all in on community. Like not just saying that like as a staff, not just saying it from the platform, like each of us as individuals has experienced the power of community and been changed by it. Like I I know I have. I I grew up not too far from here in the Decula area. And so I went through Decula Elementary, Decula Middle School, and Decula High School. And and all that time I was playing sports, not well, but playing sports. And so I played baseball, basketball, and football growing up. And so by the time I got to my freshman year of high school, I knew everyone at my school. Like I, I knew everybody. Like I could have a surface level conversation with everybody in my grade. And, and mind you, there were over 300 of us in that freshman class. And, and I could approach the jocks because I could talk sports with them because we had grown up playing sports together. I could go to the students who were into extracurriculars because I was in student council and beta club and key club. It's like I could talk about all those things. I could talk to kids in the college prep classes and the advanced classes because I took about half and half. I could even talk to the cool kids because I knew them before they were dealing with pimples and preparing for the prom. 
right? Like I could talk to everyone. I could run in any circle at the school. But here was the problem. Because I could run in any circle, I didn't have a circle of my own. Because, because I knew everyone, I actually wasn't really known by anyone. And it was right about that time that I was coming to this realization that my family received an invite to check out a church. And I didn't know it at the time, but really what that invitation was, was to check out community. Because we went to that church and it was in that church that I, I was told for the very first time that God loved me exactly as I was. Because I had gone my entire life thinking that I had to become something else for people to love, like, love, like me, much less love me. And in that church, I was told God loved me exactly was, as I was, and he already knew everything about me. And, and that, was, that was really cool. That was a cool moment for me. But the crazy thing was when I got involved in the youth group in that church, I discovered that just like God fully wanted to know me and love me, so did my peers. Like It was my first time stepping into a true, authentic community where I really was fully known and fully loved. And it changed everything. It was in that church that I crossed the line of faith and went from knowing about God to actually knowing God. I, Jesus became the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life in that church. And it was in that church that I was baptized into the faith community, the family of God. And it was in that church that I was called to be a pastor, to, to follow Jesus and help others to follow Jesus. I quite literally don't know where I would be without community. Like it's changed everything about me. And my guess is I'm not the only one who has that kind of story. Because if you're a student here this morning, you know the value of community. Like we live in a day and age today where you can get away with very minimal face-to-face -face conversation. And you can completely get away with having minimal conversation in person of anything of substance. Like if you don't really wanna dig into anything that matters at a soul level, you don't have to talk to anybody about those things. You can get away with just having enough of an online reputation, having enough digital communication back and forth to make it seem like you're good to go. But here's what I know. Digital communication is great when things are good. When things get hard, that's where you want to move from online to in-person. And here's what I know about middle school and high school. Things get hard. And you need to have that kind of community to be there for you. And adults, you don't get off the hook on this either. You need community as well. And listen, I'm reading the same stats you are, which is why I know that Americans are logging more hours, foregoing more vacation time, and still checking their email at night. And with all of that kind of results-driven thinking, we've lost sight of relationship-driven thinking. And when we lose sight of the value of relationships, we lose sight of the value of community. Which is, why, which is why I think so many of us struggle with loneliness. It's why so many of us feel like we're on our own. And it's why so many of us feel like we go through life having something to prove. But you know what? I'm convinced that if we recaptured the value and significance of community in our lives, it would change everything. It certainly did for the early church, as we'll see in our scripture this morning. And so if you brought your Bible or have a Bible app, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open up with me to Acts chapter 4. 
Again, that's Acts chapter four. And as you're turning there, I wanna let you know that if you were with us last week, we read from Acts chapter three. We're just flipping over one chapter, but if you weren't here, I wanna just make sure we're on the same page. Last week, we discussed how a couple of Jesus's original followers, like people who were in Jesus's inner circle, a guy named Peter and a guy named John, were going into the temple at midday to pray. So they're going to a prayer service. And on their way into the prayer service, there was a man who could not walk. He was literally carried to a place just outside the temple where he could beg for money. And when they see him, they actually end up not extending him money, but extending him the grace of God. And through that grace, the man experiences a miracle and he's able to stand up for the very first time. But as you can imagine, if you stood for the very first time in your life, you wouldn't just stand, would you? There was leaping, there was rejoicing, and my guess is there was some dancing. I can't prove it, it's not in here. But in my mind, when this guy stands up, there was a little boogie in a step, right? And so he stands up, and as you can imagine, If you were a person who was used to going into the temple and used to seeing this guy sitting there, seeing him standing would like create a stir. There was a buzz in the air as people were wondering, how did this guy go from sitting to standing all of a sudden? And Peter takes advantage of this opportunity. See, for him, it wasn't enough to reach out and pull this man to his feet and be a part of that miracle. He takes the miracle and stands on that miracle as a platform for the message of God. And in that message... In that message, he explains very clearly how the kingdom of God is unfolding in their midst. And you would think that that would be cause of celebration for everybody in the temple, but you'd be wrong. In fact, as they were, as they were preaching, you get the sense that they were in mid-sentence when they're cut off, and that's where our scripture begins. So let's pick up reading with Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had, who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. All right, I, I want to pause there and just make sure we're all on the same page. So, There they are preaching. So it says that they were both preaching. So Peter and John are in the temple in there proclaiming what God has done when they are abruptly cut off by this group of leaders. And it's very explicit in who those leaders are. So you have the priests who were kind of like the the highest leaders of the temple. And then you had the captain who was sort of like a, a middle management, basically overseeing all the tasks in the temple, making sure that all the logistics were being taken care of. Everything got where it needed to go and everybody went to where they were supposed to go. Um, and then it says there was another group. They were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are a really interesting group. Um, They were one of the smallest groups within Judaism. And you kind of had to be one of the financial elite to be amongst the Sadducees. They were kind of the one percenters of their day. They were the people who thought they were the most enlightened, which is why they came to the conclusion amongst themselves that there is no way there could ever be a resurrection. It simply didn't make sense. And so you could imagine their frustration at hearing that Jesus had been resurrected. You would find it greatly annoying, which is exactly what our description of this scene is. These people arrive, they see Peter and John, and they are greatly annoyed. They are so annoyed that they have Peter and John arrested. Now, you would think that that would have stopped things, right? But apparently they got there a little bit too late because our scripture says that 5,000 men crossed the line of faith 
in that moment. 5,000 men saw the miracle, heard the message, and went from knowing about God to crossing over to actually knowing God themselves. Now, this is a miraculous scene that's unfolding in our midst. And I think a lot of us, we read stories like this and we go, man, things were awesome back in the early days of the church. Like the people back then had this power in them. They could do these things. And we attribute all this stuff to the the goodness, the righteousness, the holiness of Peter and John. When we do that, we miss out on the fact that the only reason they were able to do these things was because they had been abiding in Jesus. This actually doesn't have anything to do with how good, righteous, or holy Peter and John are. It has everything to do with how good, righteous, and holy Jesus is. And if you're going, well, how do you know that? Let's flip back over really quickly to John chapter 15, verse 5. It says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the vine, which by the way is a good name for a church. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what, church? Nothing. Now, you might as well have gone on to say, you can do no miracles. You can do no preaching. You can do no powerful preaching where people respond in droves. You can do nothing. The source of Peter and John's strength wasn't in themselves. It was in Jesus with whom they were abiding. They were abiding. And I love that the way this scene unfolds is that it wasn't just Peter and it wasn't just John, because it reminds us that sometimes the best way for us to abide is side by side. I I think for a lot of us, we go about this idea of abiding and and we think to ourselves, wow, that's like an individual sport, right? Like when you abide, it's something that you go into your prayer closet and you get really quiet for like 10 20 seconds, and you just wait. And if somebody were to knock and come in and ask you what you were doing, you'd say, I'm abiding, I'm abiding. Like we act like abiding is this thing we do. When I'm convinced abiding is much less a thing you do, it's a, it's a person you become. You become a person who abides. And I think that some of the confusion lies in the fact that, that we don't always understand what the word abide means. Like, I don't know if you've ever like gathered with your friends and been like, hey, how are you? And they were like, I'm abiding. It's just, it's not, it's not what we say. It's not what we talk about, right? But abiding is this idea of just being in. It's like living in something or, or dwelling in something. You might think of it as remaining in something. And in this case, it's remaining in Christ. And I think part of the confusion on this idea of abiding stems from the fact that so many followers of Jesus act like they are given the Holy Spirit and then they put the Holy Spirit in the Holy Spirit compartment, right? Like, like in our souls, we've got like a, a compartment where just the Holy Spirit goes, but, but the rest of us is still in control of the rest of us, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't just go in one little area of your soul. The Holy Spirit wants to invade and permeate every aspect of your life so that who you are is a person who is in Christ. It's not something you consciously do. You don't wake up and go, all right, today I have to dwell in Jesus. Nope, you are a person who is dwelling in Jesus. It's not what you do, it's who you are. It's as if the Holy Spirit will not be satisfied until he drenches every aspect of your being. So that at the core of who you are, if somebody was to delve deeply into your life, into the heart of your existence, 
there would be no way of untangling where you stop and where the Holy Spirit begins. That's what it means to abide in Christ. But it's not easy, is it? In fact, I think one of the reasons we struggle with this concept of abiding in Jesus is because there's no like way to measure it. Like we don't get like an annual review on how we're abiding, right? Like I've never gotten an email from Jesus saying, well, you didn't abide so hot last fall. Maybe you can up your game this spring, right? Like, like that's not how it works. Like there's not like a grading scale, like, oh, that, man, that quiet time was a B minus, bro. What's the deal, right? Like there's not a way of evaluating it very objectively which is why I'm really thankful that in our scripture for today, we're gonna see three questions that we can ask ourselves to know how well we're abiding in Christ. And when we ask these questions of ourselves, it really provides a sense of clarity on how well others can see the fruit of us abiding. Because remember, when we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we will produce much fruit. And so if you're not seeing that fruit, maybe you need to ask these questions. And here's the first one. First one is, do you say what people need to hear? Do you say what people need to hear? Now, this is a really important question that stems from our passage today, because I want to really make sure we're rooted in the context of what Peter and John did, right? Like what they did was so bold. It was so radical when you really break it down. Think about it. We are less than two months out from Jesus being hung on a cross. And here's Peter and John performing a miracle in the temple, knowing that it was going to attract the temple, the attention of the very same people who just executed their Lord. See, what they could have done is performed the miracle, pulled the man up and walked away. They could have walked away and let the miracle just stand on its own, let it speak for itself. Or they could have done what a lot of us would have done and just said what they wanted to hear. But they choose to do neither. In fact, you can read this, the, the, the explicit nature of what they said. We're going to flip back a chapter to Acts chapter 3, verse 14. This is what it says. It says, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and you are no longer on my Christmas card list. Right? Like, like what, what he's saying is he's basically laying out for them very, very clearly that they are the reason Jesus was executed. What he's saying is I'm willing to risk my life to save the lives of others. I'm willing to say what needs to be said instead of just simply settling for what people want to hear. And listen, we live in a day and age where people just love to be told what they already want to hear. And I wish I could say that this wasn't something I wrestle with, but just recently, I, I missed this one. Last week, I was in a meeting with some subcontractors at our Flowery Branch campus, which, by the way, is really coming along nicely. We're really starting to see some progress. But we were in one of those meetings that was a really frustrating meeting. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where, where we were all able to look around the circle of us standing there and go, yep, this wasn't done right. But somehow, we were not able to pinpoint who was at fault for why what had happened had not been done correctly. Ever been in that situation where everybody goes, yeah, that's not right, but I didn't do it? That's where we were, and I was frustrated. And the meeting spilled over longer than it was supposed to take. 
And so I was now running late for the next meeting that I had to get to. And so finally we wrapped up the meeting and in the parking lot, I overheard as I was walking to my car, the subcontractors were having kind of a heated debate amongst themselves about whether like this project was really that significant because whether or not you could actually trust in the Bible was up for debate in their minds. And, and I, I, I paused and kind of turned back into the conversation and, and gave like a quick response to them. Like I just quickly kind of weighed in on the issue and then I kind of cut a joke to, to ease the tension and then I jumped in my car and I drove away. And the whole time I was driving in my car to my next meeting, something was gnawing at me. And what it was was a missed opportunity to say what needed to be said. Like, as I've replayed that scene over and over in my mind, what I wish I could go back and do is say, no, this is the very word of God spoken to you. This is God's way of telling you that he loves you, loves you enough to send his one and only son to die for you. This book contains all that is necessary for salvation. Of course it can be trusted. But I missed it. I missed that opportunity to point them to Jesus. And that's why, that's why I want to be clear this morning. When I say, are you, are you saying what needs to be said? I want that to be in connection to pointing people to Jesus. Because some of you, I think, just like wrote that down. That was your favorite note that you've ever taken here at church. Because you feel like that just gave you permission to leave here blasting your truth cannon, right? Like you've got a lot of things you want to say to a whole lot of people about their hair, about their shoes, about the thing they said, the thing they did, that you've been taking notes on things that they need to hear. Listen, listen. You don't get to leave here and blast your truth cannon, okay? Unless, unless it's designed and pointing people to Jesus. And then, then I want you to really pause and ask yourself, are you telling people about the love of Christ wrapped in grace and truth? Or are you simply saying what people want to hear? Now, that's just our first question. And in order for us to find our second question that gives us a clue or gives us some insight into how well we're abiding, we need to go further into our scripture. So we're going to pick up reading with Acts chapter 4, verse 5. This is what it says. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were on the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is such a powerful passage, and I love the undertones here. You get the sense that the, the high priest, right, and all the priestly family have gathered together with like a sense of exasperation, right? Like these are the people who are the political power players. They are the religious power players. These are the muckety mucks, the top 1% here. Like these are the big wigs, the big deals, and they are frustrated 
because they thought that they had eliminated the threat to their power and authority when they nailed Jesus to a cross. And yet here we are just a couple months later and his followers have started doing their own miracles. Some of y'all needed to hear that. Woo, okay, I didn't do that one, okay? All right, I'm gonna try to not preach so hard. I think I, I, think I just preached the audio out of this room. But in all seriousness, we need to recognize, like we need to recognize that this group of leaders for the temple, they were frustrated. And they really wanted to see this like Jesus movement stomped out. And so they're staring at this collection of John and Peter these uneducated men, and they're going, and this is the question they ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? Well, what they're getting at is, you couldn't do this on your own. So how'd you pull it off? And what do they do? Do they take credit? No, they, they, they kind of reject the credit and they point to Christ. And I love that they do that. Like they say, no, 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 I don't get credit. Christ gets the credit. And, and you almost, like, I wish I could be there. I wish I could see the looks on the high priest's face at this, at this moment as, as basically they go on to tell him that, hey, this Jesus was rejected by you and now he's become the cornerstone. And, and what, what I really feel like is probably racing through the mind of the high priest, the, whole, the entire priestly family at this point in time is the question, all right, guys, I don't know how you did this, but I'm actually less inclined to ask the question how you did this. I really wanna know why you did this. Or maybe put another way, what's your cause? What's your cause? And if you want to know how well you're abiding, if you want to know how well you're abiding in Jesus, you need to ask yourself, what's your cause? And the reality is that as followers of Jesus, we all have a cause, and it's to bring the kingdom of God to earth. It's to bring the kingdom of God into our family, our friends, our classmates, our coworkers, and our neighbors. It's to bring heaven to earth earth. But sometimes this is hard to do, isn't it? In fact, I would argue that it's getting harder and harder to do this. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we're very much living in a post-Christian America. We're living in an America where Christianity is declining year over year. The number of people attending churches, the number of people proclaiming Jesus, and the number of people receiving the good news of Jesus Christ, it's going down year after year after year. And the number of people who are becoming skeptical and almost adversarial to the cause of Christ grows every year, which presents us with a very unique opportunity. When we show people our cause, not just in word, but in deed, it has an impact deeper than we know. And we saw this last fall through Judge Tammy, um, Tammy Kent. Let me make sure, Tammy Kemp. Tammy Kemp is a, is a judge in the Dallas area, and she's a very well-respected judge. And she actually presided over one of the most um, controversial, most, um, one of the uh, court cases that got the most attention of the entire year in 2019. And in that case, it was the situation of a, a former police officer by the name of Amber Geiger, who, who shot and killed Botham Jean in his home as he was unarmed. And there was all kinds of media attention about this case. Now, interestingly enough, um, Judge Kemp was actually not the person deciding the fate of Amber Geiger. That was left up to a jury of her peers. And that jury of her peers actually did find her guilty of murder. They, they convicted her of her crime and sentenced her. And immediately following the sentencing hearing, Judge Kemp 
dismissed the jurors. And after they left the room, Judge Kemp did something that she had never done before in, in her history as a judge. She stood up and walked around her bench and she came up to the family of Botham Jean. And, and one by one, she went through the line and she shook their hand and she spoke with them, looked them in the eye and hugged them. She did that for every family member who was there in the courtroom. And, and then she turned away from the family and saw Amber Geiger, a convicted murderer standing there with tears in her eyes. And the judge looked at her and said, this whole family has forgiven you. You need to forgive yourself. And through tears, Amber Geiger's question in response was, yes, but do you think God could forgive me? And I love what Judge Kemp said. She leaned in and hugged her and said, yes, God can forgive you, and he has. She then gave Amber Geiger, convicted murderer, her Bible. Not a Bible, her Bible. Knowing that she would need it as she started her life incarcerated. And what I love about this scene is it created so much conversation. It created such a stir in our country today because people didn't know what to do with this idea that a judge would go from behind her bench and hug a convicted murderer. Nobody knew what to make of this. And she did interview after interview asking her the simple question, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Why did you do this? And I love this, scene. I love this story because the answer is not one that our world's ever gonna understand. The answer of why she did this was because her cause is so much greater than a courtroom. Her cause is the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus himself. That is her cause. And when your cause is bigger than this world can understand, it creates a scene, it creates a stir, and people begin to ask questions, which is why we've got to ask the question of ourselves, what is our cause? Because if our cause is anything of this world, this world will never notice. See, Judge Kemp's cause was not of this world. It was the cause of Christ and making his name known among us. And when that's our cause, it changes everything. In fact, it changes us and the world begins to see us differently. And we see exactly what that looks like in our very next verse. Let's pick up reading with Acts 4 verse 13. This is our last verse of the morning. It says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with who? Jesus. Recognize that they had been with Jesus. Why? Because they were educated? Nope. Because they had the right upbringing? Nope. Because they had the right job? Nope. Because they had been with Jesus. Which brings us to our final question that we need to ask ourselves. When the world looks at us, do they know that we've been with Jesus? Is there something about us that lets the world know that we have been in the presence of God Almighty? the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer of the world, the sustainer of all that is. Does the world know that? Because if the world doesn't know it, how do we expect for the world to be changed? We've got to abide so deeply in Jesus. We've got to dwell so closely in Christ that we can't help but changing this world by what we say and what we do. I, I, I love this weekend. This is, this is Martin Luther King Jr., weekend. 
But what's interesting to me about this weekend is that there's going to be a whole lot of stories run on Dr. King. There's going to be a lot of um, articles printed on Dr. King. There's going to be a whole lot of people who post a whole lot of things on their social media about Dr. King. And a lot of times when people look back on the life of Dr. King, they portray him first and foremost as an activist, as a leader of a cause. Listen, I don't mean to in any way, shape, or form diminish Dr. King's legacy. Dr. King was surely and certainly the tip of the spear for a movement, a civil rights movement that forever changed our nation, that the ramifications and ripple effect is still being felt in our world today. But if you think first and foremost that Dr. King was an activist, you do not understand Dr. King. Dr. King was first and foremost a follower of Jesus. Long before he led, long before he led the Birmingham bus boycott or the March on Washington, he was a pastor and a follower of Christ. And one of these things that this weekend like challenges me to do is to go back and read his writings. And by the way, this is a great opportunity. If you have not read in a while uh, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, Great opportunity to do that. But one of the things I like to do is to go back and read some of his earliest sermons that he wrote. And you can actually, if you really are interested in Dr. King, you can go to the museum and see some of his handwritten messages that he preached. And in one of his earliest messages, he said this to his congregation. He said, those who are serious about finding God this morning, I bid you turn to Christ. Because in him, you will find the person, the personification of all that is high and noble. And consequently, you will find God. Don't miss this. In Christ is how you find God. What he's talking about is what it looks like to abide, to remain in, to dwell in Jesus. When you abide in Christ, you find God. And consequently, so does everybody around you. If you want to make a difference, a kingdom difference in this world, abide in Jesus. Peter and John, this miracle that we just read about, this, this message they just proclaimed, it started with them abiding in Christ. You want to look at the, the life and the death of Martin Luther King Jr.? You know where it started? With him abiding in Christ. If you want to make a kingdom impact in this world, if you want to do things that are so incredible that this world cannot pretend that they didn't happen, that it starts with you abiding in Christ. So my invitation to you this morning is to ask yourself these questions. Are you saying what people need to hear to point them to Christ? Do you have a cause that's, that's greater than this world? And when people look at your life, do they recognize that you've been with Jesus? And listen, for a lot of you, you're content to let this world know that you've been in church. It's not enough to be in church. You've got to be in Christ because it's in Christ that his power and his presence flow from heaven to earth. And he wants to do that through you. So church, my prayer for you this week is that you will find yourself in a Christ-centered community, shoulder to shoulder with people who will help you to abide in Jesus like you never have before. And so if you haven't signed up for a connect group or for Engage, get signed up. 
And if you're here this morning, and this idea, this idea of connecting to Jesus seems foreign to you, doesn't make sense to you, that means that you haven't crossed over that line of faith. But you can today. And I'm telling you, when you cross over that line of faith, it's not a one-time decision. It's not something that you do. It's who you become because of who comes to be in you. And the spirit of Jesus himself will come into your life right now if you'll simply ask. God, I'll see you. I'll be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I'll see you. You will my help come strong. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do.
No. 